2005 UTC right after the international news. Sporty greetings to all our Voice of America listeners. This is VOA's Sonny Young in Washington. Thanks for tuning in this evening. Welcome to the sunny side of sports. Stand up! Friends, we can all listen to the sunny side of sports. Yes, my friend. The sunny side of sports. Sunny side of sports. The sunny side of sports show. Great show, bro. This is sunny side of sports. Sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. Voice of America. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. This evening, VOA's Adam Phillips looks at the controversial and charismatic life and legacy of Muhammad Ali, the three-time world heavyweight boxing champion who died at the age of 74. And Adam begins with Ali's birth. Muhammad Ali was born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. in Louisville, Kentucky on January 17, 1942, to a poor family. One day, when Cassius was 12, someone stole his beloved bicycle. A white policeman named Joe Martin heard Clay crying and vowing to beat up the thief. On the spot, Martin offered to mentor the boy at his boxing gym downstairs as a way to channel his anger. In 1960, just six years later, Cassius Clay would win Olympic gold in Rome. The most popular USA winner was the lighthearted Cassius Marcellus Clay V in white here who easily defeated Poland's Zbigniew Petrakowski. Cassius Clay, the winner for the USA. Legend has it that back in Kentucky, Cassius Clay angrily threw his gold medal into the river because of the racism he encountered in Louisville. Still, he was quickly snapped up by a small group of Louisville investors who sensed his promise, says New York University history professor Jeffrey Sammons, who doesn't really believe that Ali actually threw his medal away. But the author of Rebel with a Cause and Beyond the Ring, the Role of Boxing in American Society, says that all the hype around Cassius Clay was certainly real enough. He becomes a Madison Avenue creation, a breath of fresh air. Boxing had grown stale. There, there were all kinds of issues with organized crime. They saw in this young, brash Cassius Clay someone who would make boxing marketable in a way that it once had been. He modeled himself on, in some ways, Jack Johnson because he talked to his opponent, but on the other hand, on Gorgeous George. Uh, who was this foppish wrestler who had all this shtick, you know, with perfume and blonde hair and effeminacy, et cetera, uh, that he was the beautiful one. And, of course, uh, young Clay uh, referred to himself as beautiful but also as the greatest. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. This I predict, and I know the score. I'll be champ of the world in 64. This patter earned Cassius Clay the nickname the Louisville Lip. Many people didn't think that he was for real, that he was more mouth than skill or talent. And, of course, many of these opponents were not very skillful boxers or they were well past their prime. As when, in November 1962, Clay fought Archie Moore in Los Angeles. The man, fans dubbed Ageless Archie, entered professional boxing seven years before Clay was born. 
Clay accurately predicted before the fight, don't block the aisle and don't block the door. You will all go home after round four. Ripping punches by Clay and Moore goes down. Cassius raises his hands over his head and it's all over. Clay wins by a fourth round knockout as predicted. Soon bigger bouts were in the offing. Ali had won all 19 of his professional fights when he challenged Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship of the world. Hulking and powerful, with a criminal record and alleged ties to the mafia, Liston accepted Clay's challenge. The fight was set for February 25, 1964, in Miami Beach, Florida. During the run-up to the bout, Clay continually taunted Liston to reporters, calling him a big, ugly bear who even smells like a bear. I'm handsome, I'm fast, I'm pretty, and can't possibly be beat. If you like to lose your money, be a fool and bet on Sonny. When Ali showed up for the weigh-in the night of the match, the betting odds were 8-1 to one against him. Astoundingly, Clay vanquished Liston in the seventh round in a technical knockout. Clay has won! Clay has won! Then, the new heavyweight champion of the world does something else, perhaps even more dramatic. Immediately after the fight, he announces that he had converted to the Nation of Islam, that he was changing his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. Cassius Clay is a slave name, he said. I am Muhammad Ali, a free name. It means beloved of God, and I insist people use it when they speak to me. Jeffrey Salmon says this frightened and angered many people. Many people saw the nation of Islam or even Islam itself as sort of a non-Western religion. So that made Ali an outcast. Someone said that they'd rather have someone who's identified with organized crime than to have someone identified with Islam or in this instance, the nation of Islam, which was known at that time by many as black Muslims. Although nation of Islam leader Elijah Muhammad and his follower, the black power activist Malcolm X, both rejected the term, the nation of Islam did portray whites as devils and blacks as racially and spiritually superior. One of the things about the Nation of Islam is that it rejected integration. It believed in separation of the races, which ironically made it very popular with the Ku Klux Klan. Malcolm X actually met with Klan. It also resonated with someone like Richard Russell, who was a staunch segregationist senator from, from Georgia, and Russell was very supportive of Ali. So it, it just shows you there can be strange bedfellows in politics and boxing. In December 1965, Madison Square Garden photographer George Kalinske was still an amateur. He was in Miami when he spotted Ali crossing the street to the storied 5th Street gym, where the champ was training to fight Ernie Terrell the following March. Knowing that Ali was now one of the most famous and controversial celebrities in the world, Kalinsky decided to follow Ali inside, even if it meant using a bit of bluff with Angelo Dundee, Ali's trainer, at the door. And I said... I'm the photographer of Madison Square Garden. At that point, I was only the photographer of my family. Angelo Dundee looked at me and he said, Okay, comedian, come on in. So I went into the gym and I see Muhammad Ali working out. What was it like to see that? Pretty excited that I would be able to take pictures of somebody famous in an area that was pretty private. We had instant chemistry. 
we had, at least I had, the trust almost immediately in Muhammad Ali looking into my camera, and he somehow was trying to be good to me so that I would get good pictures. The eight pictures Kalinsky took that day did land him a photographer's job at Madison Square Garden. More important to Kalinsky, however, was that the initial unspoken trust he shared with Ali developed into a friendship that lasted a lifetime. And that friendship was very, very important to me because, number one, I was able to get really great shots of probably the world's most famous-looking face. And secondly, Muhammad Ali, for all the brutality that boxing represents, also represented to me a beauty where he tried to be friendly and kind. A current exhibit of George Kalinsky's photographs of Muhammad Ali at the New York Historical Society shows many of the softer sides of Ali behind the scenes. There are pictures that show him eating, washing up, or just clowning around. One memorable shot shows Ali napping in his hotel room between workouts. The muscle tone and gleam of his torso make him look every bit the champ. Yet one can also sense the all-too-vulnerable human being within. Of course, most of the most famous Ali photographs were shot in public, either in the ring, training, sparring with the press, or showing off to the public. Muhammad Ali was a fascinating subject, says Kalinsky, because everything he did radiated charisma. Whenever you walk down the street with Muhammad Ali, walk into a building, into a lobby, whenever you walk into an area where there were a lot of people, everybody sort of gawked at him as if, wow, that's Muhammad Ali. How many people in this world have that charisma that he had? Ali often projected an image of barely contained masculine rage. This was publicity gold. But Kalinsky says Ali was actually the gentlest man he ever knew. Not many people know, unless you were speaking to him in private, that he really spoke in private in a whisper. In 1967, the United States was deeply ensnared in the Vietnam War. It was a brutal conflict which sharply divided the American public. Muhammad Ali was one of hundreds of thousands of young American men who were drafted. He refused to serve, citing the Quran's injunction not to fight in Christian wars. Further alienating himself from the white establishment, he told reporters he had no problem with the communist Viet Cong he'd be expected to kill. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some pro-hungry people in the mud a big, powerful America, and shoot them for what? They never call me nigger. They never lynch me. They never put no dogs on me. They never rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. How can I shoot them poor people? I'm just take me to jail. According to Jeffrey Sammons, that's just what the government set out to do. He's convicted of draft evasion, uh, fined $10,000, and sentenced to five years in prison. Of course, there are appeals, but at the same time, the boxing authorities are also acting. They're removing his boxing license, stripping him of his uh, heavyweight title, and his passport is revoked, so he cannot box anywhere. He can't box here, and he can't leave the country to box somewhere outside of the United States. Ali then took to the college lecture circuit, where he got a sympathetic audience among students who also opposed the war, during what would otherwise have been the heart of his stellar boxing career. So it's from 67 to 70 that he's not able to box and earn a living. He said, I understand it. I'm standing up for principle. You know, I'm, I can't sell myself out. It took a lot of guts to do that, right? Oh, absolutely. 
on one hand, where all of this hurt his boxing career, it made him into a legendary figure. It made him into a transcendent figure. And I maintain that that's when he really becomes the people's champ. At the start of 1967, Muhammad Ali was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world and at the height of his fame and adulation. Indeed, many boxing fans and celebrity watchers had come to agree with Ali's brash insistence that he really was the greatest. This is the legend of Muhammad Ali, the most popular fighter there ever will be. Ali fights great. He's got speed and endurance. If you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. Ali had courted controversy, even condemnation, back in 1964, when following his defeat of heavyweight champion Sonny Liston, he converted to Islam and changed his name from Cassius Clay, what he called his slave name, to Muhammad Ali. But his greatest challenge with the establishment came in April of 1967, when he refused to join the American Armed Forces and go fight in Vietnam. The war was dividing the nation, and many supporters of the war reviled him as unpatriotic, a bum, and far worse for his refusal to serve. Ali was convicted of draft evasion, fined $10,000, and sentenced to five years in prison, which he was able to put off while appealing the decision. His passport was confiscated. Even worse for his career, the State Boxing Commission stripped Ali of his crown and revoked his boxing license. But for him, the principle at stake outweighed the glories of the ring. Ali spent the next three years appealing his conviction and speaking on college campuses to students who also opposed the Vietnam War and to some students who supported the war. But in 1970, Muhammad Ali found the loophole that would get him back into competition. There was no state boxing bureaucracy in the southern state of Georgia, so Ali challenged Jerry Quarry, a powerful white boxer, to fight him there. New York University historian Jeffrey Salmon says the Ali Quarry fight packed a powerful symbolic punch. It was the stormy civil rights era, and many blacks and whites saw the contest as a showdown between the races. Remember, Georgia's governor is Lester Maddox, who is this staunch segregationist, is known for running black people out of his restaurant with a pickaxe. But there was a very powerful black state senator, Leroy Johnson, who told Maddox that this would be in his best interest to allow this fight to happen, and he agreed. The fight took place in Atlanta, Georgia, on October 26. 1970. Ali trounced Quarry in three rounds. All over, and rightly so, and not before it's time. The federal court overturned Ali's conviction as arbitrary and unreasonable. Ali was ready to regain his world heavyweight title by fighting Joe Frazier. Smokin' Joe had earned the heavyweight title in elimination bouts after Ali's belt was stripped from him. The Ali Frazier fight was touted as the fight of the century. It would determine which of those two undefeated champs could claim the belt. True to form, Ali played to reporters by taunting and insulting Frazier. Here's one example among many. Joe Frazier is so ugly, his face should be donated to the Bureau of Wildlife. <laughs> many thought Ali was angry at Joe Frazier, but that wasn't true in the opinion of Madison Square Garden photographer George Kalinsky. Kalinsky was a trusted friend who snapped photos of the fighter in public and behind the scenes for nearly 50 years. 
Many of those pictures are now on exhibit at the New York Historical Society. When he talked about Joe Frazier, what he was really doing is being the showman, the performer, the entertainer to promote the fight. He said, if I sold tickets, then I did my work. Prior to the fight, Kalinsky shot several roles of Ali and Frazier in Frazier's Philadelphia gym. In a first, Kalinsky asked them to put their heads together and to lock eyes in an attitude of barely contained fury. Then came the sparring. And Joe hits Ali so hard in the stomach that Ali actually went down, and I couldn't believe this, that here I have my own fight going on with them. I start to help Muhammad Ali up, and he's looking at Joe Frazier, and he said, you son of a gun can really punch. And Joe Frazier looks at Ali and he said, that's the way it's going to be the night of the fight. You're going down. Indeed, Ali lost the so-called fight of the century marquee matchup in 15 rounds. It was the first defeat of his professional career. Undaunted, he then fought boxing great Ken Norton. Norton broke Ali's jaw, handing the erstwhile greatest a second stinging defeat. Again, Jeffrey Sammons of New York University. And many people thought that that might be the end of, of Ali's career. And that's also the allure of Ali, that he's able to come back from the brink, from adversity. And he would beat Ken Norton in a rematch. And Joe Frazier would not give Ali a shot at the championship. And Joe Frazier loses his crown to George Foreman, who was enormous and hawking and just destroyed Joe Frazier in two bouts. George Foreman, now the heavyweight champion himself, did accept Ali's challenge. Ali was heavily favored to lose. The boxing world readied itself for a colossal contest between the two men. It was set for Kinshasa in the former Zaire, now called the Democratic Republic of Congo. Ali called the contest the Rumble in the Jungle. I think it was speaking to the historic role that Ali had played in terms of black nationalism, black pride. Almost from the beginning, the African public favored Muhammad Ali over George Foreman. Sammons explains part of the cause. George Foreman made the serious mistake of taking a German police dog with him to Zaire. And this dog symbolized oppression and white colonialism. So George Foreman became persona non grata. And there was this famous French chant by kids and others, Ali Bumbaye, Ali kill him. In private, Ali lacked confidence. He spontaneously came to call on his friend, the photographer George Kalinsky, at his office. And I said, what's going on? He said, well, I'm fighting George Foreman in Zaire. He's too big, he's too strong, he's too fast, he's too young, he's too quick, he's too big. There's no way I can beat him in this fight. Kalinsky says he thought about it for a moment, then came up with a strategy that would become an Ali hallmark. I said, you know, Muhammad, all your life you've been training for this fight, but you didn't know it. Whenever I saw you working out, which are many, many times working out in the gym with your sparring partner, what you do is you lean against the ropes and you let your sparring partner hit you and hit you and hit you. What you do the night of the fight is the same thing. You lean against the ropes, just let them swing away, and you act like a dope on the ropes, like you're sick, like you're not well. And eventually he's going to tire himself out then you knock him out. He said, you mean you want me to be a rope-a-dope? I said, okay, we'll call it rope-a-dope. And that's what happened when he fought George Foreman. The fight took place in a football stadium under the moon. It was a brutal contest, 
but Ali sent Foreman to the floor in the eighth round and reclaimed his heavyweight title. As ecstatic fans streamed to the ring, the commentator, David Frost, crowed, the great man has done it. This is the most joyous scene in the history of boxing. Basking in his victory, Ali was invited to the White House to meet President Gerald Ford, a clear sign of Ali's rehabilitation in official eyes. But there were more challenges to come. Most famously, there would be Ali's epic rematch against Joe Fraser in October 75 in Manila, the Philippines. During the build-up to what became known as the Thriller in Manila, the animosity between the two men was electric. A little sharp point. It says it will be a killer and a thriller and a killer when I get the gorilla in Manila. From the first bell, the men went at each other with unstoppable, constant, vicious energy. Ali finally won in the 15th round, but Jeffrey Salmon says both men paid a terrible price. And Ali said about it that it was the closest thing to death that he had ever experienced or could imagine. And of course, we know that Ali had Parkinson's syndrome, which many believe was brought on by the brain trauma that he suffered. There were more bouts, but George Kalinske and others could not help but notice that Ali was slurring his speech and that his hands were unsteady. I said, Muhammad Ali... Why are you fighting? Are you going to hurt yourself? You're already becoming hurt. And he said, in his whisper way, he said, you know, the ring is my stage, and I'm the most famous person in the world to look at. If I didn't have the ring as my stage, if I stopped fighting, everybody else is going to forget who I am. So I have to continue this way. On more than one occasion, Lee attempted freelance diplomacy. In 1979, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, U.S. President Jimmy Carter called for a worldwide boycott of the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. And he enlists Ali to go to Africa to convince African leaders that they should not participate in the 80 Olympics. The African leaders are, first of all, resentful of the fact that Jimmy Carter would send a boxer to do his bidding. Salmons adds that many leaders were also bitter that the United States didn't boycott the 1976 Olympics in Montreal as a protest against New Zealand, which played cricket, rugby, and football with South Africa, then living under apartheid. So they said, you wouldn't support us on the 76 Olympics in Montreal. We're not going to support you on the 80 Olympics in Moscow. Ali fought his last fight in 1981, a shell of his former physical self. But as his Parkinson's worsened, he committed himself to humanitarian concerns. He represented UNICEF and the Special Olympics. In 1990, during the run-up to the first Gulf War, Ali successfully negotiated with Saddam Hussein for the release of American hostages. He also fundraised tirelessly for medical research into Parkinson's. Photographer George Kalinske says Ali was almost universally revered later in life. That's why Ali was asked to light the torch inaugurating the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta, Georgia. He represented goodness, he represented a champion, and he represented a person that the world loved. And when he held that torch up, shaking from his Parkinson's, people began to love Muhammad Ali more and more and more. It certainly was one of the shining moments of his life.
There is no question in the world that he is the greatest of all time. When Muhammad Ali died, the world lost a man many considered to be the greatest athlete of the 20th century. The world also grieved for a principled, albeit flawed human being who truly combined the beauty of the butterfly with the sting of the bee. For the sunny side of sports, I'm VOA's Adam Phillips in New York. Thanks, Adam. I really enjoyed your Muhammad Ali feature. This brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. I am the greatest. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help you every day, it will brighten all the way, if you keep on the sunny side of life. VOA Sunny Young in Washington, and that's the sunny side of sports. VOA Africa has built a successful, effective social media strategy through Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and other digital platforms. We are responding to our audience on the African continent and in the global diaspora. We believe in the power of connection and interaction to bring you news that is comprehensive, accurate, and objective. We see the changes in technology as an opportunity to engage with our audiences about the issues that affect them. VOA Africa, we don't just report the news, we help shape the conversation on the continent. VOA, your trusted source for news and information. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of Press Conference USA, VOA's newsmaker interview program. Join us each Saturday and Sunday when we talk with authors, analysts, and policymakers who provide fresh insight on topics ranging from U.S. politics and foreign policy to science, culture, and global health. You can listen to Press Conference USA on the radio or online at voanews.com slash PCUSA. While you're visiting our website, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. Just send an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com or connect with us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Carol Castiel VOA or on Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA. That's Press Conference USA every Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. 
Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. Join your host, Larry London, for Border Crossings, VOA's Worldwide Music Request Hour, every weekday at 1500 Universal. Tune in to hear your favorite songs and artists, win prizes and giveaways, and get the latest scoop from exclusive celebrity interviews. Send in requests to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or call 202-618-2077 to have your favorite music played for the entire world. Don't miss Border Crossings every weekday at 1500 Universal. VOA's Our Voices television program is about more than just sitting and talking about women's issues. It's about listening to them and bringing their opinions to the table and making sure that their voices are heard. Because our lived experiences, our stories, and our voices will help shape the next generation. Check your local TV listings and join the conversation each week with Our Voices on VOA. The Voice of America's global news program, International Edition, brings you an in-depth look at the biggest news stories of the day. Nobody covers the world more comprehensively than VOA. Our correspondents gather the news and the views of the most seasoned experts on international issues. Tune in Monday through Friday at 3.30 and 1705 UTC on The Voice of America. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music, from bobo music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, Afrobeat to Dumbolo and Makosa to Kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 0905 and 2005 UTC right